You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. to be hosting your podcast, flipping the script a little bit, um, and also letting your listeners uh, hear a little bit more about you and your backstory. Yeah. So uh, here, why don't I introduce you as the sure, host sure. Uh, yeah. to this episode of the podcast, <laughs> and then we'll uh, and then I'll, I'll I'll hand the reins and and, and you take over. And uh, I appreciate you doing this. So just you know, for everybody listening, um, Anne Marie is uh, my colleague at. Origin Capital. So it's one of the hats that I wear. We're going to talk a little bit today about the work that I do there um, and the team does. Uh, and Amory hosts uh, the Good Money podcast, which is Origin Capital's podcast. And for anybody following this one, that's a great podcast for you as well. It's brand new. Uh, I've only published, I think, two or three episodes now. Um, but we're talking a lot about both the work that Origin Capital does, and that uh, is, you know, it creating high impact investment opportunities that um, allow you know Canadians to invest in a way that provides opportunities for really vulnerable people um, and communities across the globe. And we really venture out beyond just talking about ourselves to the entire industry and the whole idea of kind of bringing market-based approaches to solving the root problems of inequality. Um, and so we will share information about what we're doing, conversations we're having, events and presentations we've done and panel discussions and just thoughtful and interesting conversations with thought leaders across the international you know development space so that really has a a real international focus on vulnerable um uh communities abroad yeah exactly so the official tagline is impact investing for sustainable development but we cover a lot of of ground. There's, there'll be conversations about impact measurement. We have a couple about plastic that we're working on right now. Um, plastic waste and pollution, investing in fragile contexts. It'll really run the gamut. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like it's a, it's a nice kind of, um, uh, it leverages this nice because the impact investing podcast really tries to, we get into some advanced, you know, discussions and, and, and concepts, but really tries to take the focus of, you know, making it accessible for anybody who's brand new. And so as you sort of explore and get a taste of a wide variety of of contexts where market-based approaches and impact investing can make a positive impact on society, the, it, you know, as you have interest in that, the application of that, particularly in an international context and particularly in, you know, sort of middle income, um, least developed and then kind of fragile context, you it allows you to really dive a lot deeper into that um, big, big area of focus. We cover a wide geographic net, um, but it's, but it's, um, you know, more, uh, more along that line. So you can really kind of dive into that discussion and and um, topic. Yeah, exactly. And one, good money. So follow Good Money if you're not following us already. Yes. One more thing about Good Money before we jump into this episode of the Impact Investing Podcast is Good Money is a podcast that might be a little bit unconventional in that really it's a window into our world. We thought we're having all these interesting conversations behind the scenes and we might just flip a recorder on and just tape them and put them out there for people to listen to. So it might not be always the most polished or produced podcast, but it'll 
range from, you know, planned episodes about a certain topic, interviews with a number of guests, a very sort of structured podcast to just, hey, we turned a recorder on and at a conference and this is a cool talk that we thought people would like. So, um, so people know what to expect. That's sort of the ethos of that podcast. Yeah, hundred percent. I love that. And, 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 and that's exactly right. Like we're having those conversations in, in, you know, at, at our offices and in between, you know, staff members and colleagues, it's like, oh boy, this is, this is an episode that we need to just share this information. It's really interesting. And I think others would find this an interesting discussion because we're really at the forefront of uh, bringing market-based approaches to this type of context. It's a much harder context I think to apply market-based approaches is in the more, you know, the, the, the lower the development curve you go down um, to the more vulnerable and, and fragile context, it just gets a lot harder to do. There's a lot more issues to, to try to work through. And we're thinking through those and we're, you know, struggling and wrestling with them and, and figuring them out as we go. And so, you know, as you say, like open up the window and let people kind of come on that journey with us. Exactly. We'll talk more about that as we get to Origin Capital, but let's rewind the tape a little bit and start with you and your background and your story. Um, so I'm taking the the seat now as the host. And uh, David, tell us about you. How did you, first of all, tell us about your childhood, adolescence, your plans for university, early life. Yeah, so I'm going to try to give you the real quick uh, version of the story because I can certainly talk about it a lot. Um, I mean, my background is I, I grew up in kind of West Toronto, uh, upper middle class, um, you know, parents who had really worked really hard were um, second generation um, uh, Canadians themselves. So their parents had, had immigrated and, um, you know, they they uh, worked real hard and we, you know, had the benefit of of, of their hard work. And and I, I didn't really want for much. Um, my parents had a harder time, but we, you know, they were very focused on education and, you know, savings. And so they, we kind of had a couple mantras in our household drilled into our head, which is to like, be, you know, reach financial independence and get lots of education because that's how you get a good job and that's how you pay for things. And so, um, you know, that was the focus in our in our household. And it wasn't so much um, really thinking and talking a lot about how do we make a positive impact on society. And and my parents cared about that stuff. They, you know, were very loving and thoughtful, wonderful people. But it just wasn't like a part of our, the fabric of our, you know, household conversations and, and uh, makeup. And so, uh, I studied um, English literature in undergraduate. I thought I'd be a teacher. I, most of my family are teachers. And um, I started working at a bank when I was in high school. And uh, I started off as a teller. And I thought this is just a part-time job. That'll be, you know, real. It's, it paid really well. And uh, while I'm, you know, in university, I uh, studying to become a teacher. That's a great way to pass the time and make some money. And what I found was that I started to become interested in it. I started to take industry courses and learn more about finance. And that was interesting to me uh, so much so that I ended up, you know, kind of finishing my undergraduate early. And um, I mean, I completed it and, um, and then decided to switch into business. And I ended up pretty much going from undergraduate, I took a year off, worked full time at the bank for that period of time. I was a financial advisor at the time and, um, uh, and then did an MBA and um, went down the MBA CFA route, really focused on investments and finance. And I was uh, went to work for a company called Morningstar, which um, is a large provider of um, investment data, investment research. And their ethos is really helping uh, investors make better decisions and really being an objective, independent voice 
that sticks up for the little guy or the little girl who you know who, who doesn't know enough about um, you know the financial landscape to really advocate for their own you know rights and what they sh- you know what's fair and you know, what prices are fair and what type of disclosures they should be receiving and so Morningstar stands as that voice which is great so I kind of cut my teeth um, in the investment world with a firm that really has a wonderful objective mission and, and culture and really lives it out. And I, in particular, ran a team of analysts. Um, uh, I started, sort of took over that that team very early on in its um, development and grew the team out. And we would evaluate mutual funds um, and basically tell investors which mutual funds are worth investing in and which ones they should stay away from because there's a lot of crappy mutual funds out there. Um, and this is all relevant because it's, um, you know, it's forming in me, um, I think this, it's cultivating in me this idea of what I think is right and wrong and what things you, you should stand up for in this world. And it felt really good to be able to stand up for ordinary Canadians and say like, listen, these mutual funds you're selling are really expensive. Their performance has been poor. It, you know, I don't know, you know, the, the fees aren't being properly disclosed. And so you, we had this, worked for a company that allowed us to say those things and stood up and protected your independence and objectivity, your ability to say that, um, despite the fact that a lot of revenue that Morningstar generates comes from the same companies we're critiquing uh, because they purchase products and services, but they maintain a pretty strict Chinese wall is the term that they use in, in finance to separate, you know, our analysts' objective opinions and the business of selling software solutions or investment data to these same institutions our analysts are critiquing. And that's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing to have an organization that sort of allows you to do that. Um, But anyway, that was sort of, for me, I think the first thing where I was connecting meaning and purpose in my life to my job and making an income, which, you know, wasn't the focus of the discussion in my my household growing up because my parents were you know, I, I don't think it had that luxury. They they worked mm-hmm. really hard and and um, you know had to had to really put themselves through school and save and try to you know build a better life for us. But I had the luxury, I think, of of starting off in a much better position, and so could afford to start thinking about those things. And that's the first time it really started to happen for me. That makes sense. <clears throat> and then what happened next? So you're working at Morningstar. Yeah, and uh, I uh, ended up. Uh, um, meeting a girl. Uh, that girl later became my wife. Uh, and uh, she works for World Vision. Um, and she is a nutritionist. She's a, a nutrition technical specialist. She does a lot of our, uh, responsible for a lot of our work and programming in terms of improving health outcomes and nutrition outcomes of um, particularly, but not exclusively, kind of preterm moms and babies in the developing world and had a focus on sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, a little bit of the Middle East and emerging Europe. And um, that changed my perspective, my worldview. She came from a line of um, her family for generations had done that type of work. And her mom had worked for World Vision. And um, after we met, I really realized I wanted to kind of like understand her perspective. And it was important for her as well because she would talk about her day. And I was so disconnected from anything outside of my suburban upper middle class bubble that I had no perspective on what life was like for the people she was, you know, trying to work with and and improve outcomes for, but also her day-to-day life when she would travel, because she would travel a lot to the field. Um, 
and so it was important for me in our relationship, I think, to understand that. But um, what it did was um, kind of awakened in me an interest and a and a passion for uh, the issues that 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 World Vision tackles and 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 uh, much of the world faces. Um, so it was really interesting. Her her mom was friends with um, World Vision's head of the Sierra Leone um, country office, and she you know, kind of called in a favor and said, listen, you know, would you allow my son-in-law to come out and do some volunteer work? And, um, you know, I, I, so she said yes, and they organized it. I, you know, flew out on my own, you know, dime and just went and tried not to get in the way and tried to be as productive and helpful as I could and did a lot of basic, you know, administration and, and um, you know, do whatever I could to be helpful. But where I was focusing specifically was on their work in, economic development and microfinance because it was closest to my background in finance. Um, and I got to learn a lot about the challenges that um, small businesses face uh, in Sierra Leone, which had been you know, ravaged by you know, a decade-long civil war, um, and you know, how you try to bounce back from something like that. And it was just, this sounds like a bad, bad cliche because it's another you know, privileged white person going to Africa talking about how changed they they were from the experience, but um, it's exactly what happened to me. Um, and so I I had come back from that trip really profoundly changed by it. I, I remember a specific moment. Uh, I sponsor a child through World Vision, and I went out to see <clears throat> um, went to see him, and I'm out in the you know really remote village in Sierra Leone near the Liberian border, and you know, it's a tiny town of, you know, village of a couple hundred people. There's one school for all the kids in the, you know, entire town uh, for all the grades and they literally in one classroom. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's, and it's a thatched, you know, hut school. And I'm just sitting there like a week ago, you know, I'm, I'm in meetings with mutual fund industry executives, the, you know, top of the TD tower or, mm-hmm. you know, and, it's just such a dichotomy, you know, in the context and environment and really like I felt increasingly disconnected from uh, the work that I had been doing uh, in finance and investment world um, because the the needs here seem so much more basic and urgent. Um, so that was a transformative trip for me. Um, I'll just relay one story and the, the risk of droning on too long because I said I was going to be quick. Um <laughs> I thought going into it like, oh, I've got all this knowledge and this expertise and I'm going to, you know, lend that to, you know, a, a context where, you know, I think we need all the help we can get. And I, you know, I was taught, I think, a, a bunch of humility in the process of, oh, boy, there's so much I don't know. Mm-hmm. And even though I have certain skills and expertise, a lot of it is not translatable, especially without a, a basic understanding of the context and the challenges and not a basic understanding, actually, a, a, you need to have, I think, a thorough and deep understanding. Mm-hmm. And so I was in a, uh, during the time I was there for six weeks, uh, spent a lot of that time with the local World Vision staff, following them around, helping out wherever I could. And towards the end of the time, the staff said to me like, oh, hey, and, and most of this, all, almost all the staff are local Sierra Leoneans. And they said, you know, hey, you're, I know you're come from the world of finance and investments. Can you give us some financial tips? And so we actually organized a bit of a presentation and I remember thinking to myself like, oh my goodness, what am I going to, what advice do I have for, <laughs> I help people who already have money saved up, make investments in 
you know, countries where there's a functioning stock and bond market and exchanges and all sorts of financial products at their disposal. So essentially, I help people who are already wealthy, mm-hmm. you know, make better investments and become wealthier. What am I going to talk to about with this group? And um, so I did a little bit of research. I was in a small town in Sierra Leone and went to the local banks and tried to learn about what products or investments are available uh, to the local uh, Sierra Leone in that town. And and then, you know, and there's very little to, to almost nothing. Um, and I just decided to spend the time asking questions and learning. And so, but I was thinking to myself, like, I don't want to only ask questions because they were asking me for advice. So I thought to myself, like, okay, the one thing I think I could tell them that might be valuable is like, you know, no matter what your income is, and these are all World Vision employees, so they are being paid, right? Like they're they're relatively well off comparatively to a lot of others in their communities. Just take, even if you can take the smallest amount of money and set it aside every week, every month to start saving, that compounds and grows over time. It's a very big behavioral uh, factor in, in, in finances. And if you automate your savings and you make it habitual, it really compounds and grows over time. And so I've anticipated one of the objections would be, oh yeah, but we don't that like laugh to laugh about you know saving money because like money's tight and we don't have extra money to save. And I was going to say something clever like, well, the next time you know you receive a raise at World Vision, pretend you didn't get it or some percentage of it pretend you didn't get and just set that aside as savings. And so anyway, this moment comes, we have the conversation. I'm asking lots of questions. Uh, the time comes up where I say this. And I ask, you know, how many people are setting aside savings and, you know, talk about how that's a good idea. And I get the predictable laugh. And so I say, oh, why is that funny? And I'm ready for my counterpoint. And uh, a woman puts up her hand and she says, and I said, why is that funny? And she says, well, that money that we make doesn't belong to us. And I was like, oh, what do you mean? She's like, well, for instance, in my community, I was the only one who went to school because my entire community chipped in and paid for it. And so I owe this money to my, I send out like a lot of, most of this money goes back to my community. And I was like, oh man, and I get, I'm getting goosebumps now telling the story, but like, I, so I, the one little shred of expertise or some sort of advice I thought I could give was a precisely zero value in a context where they view money and their sense of community is so radically different than the North American context, mm-hmm. which is, you know, I earned this money, this is my money and I do what I want with it. And theirs is, I'm part of a community. There's something bigger than me here. And it's just like, oh, man, I just like it was just so um, humbling to realize how little I know and how little value I have to add at this point. And so I kind of went on, got back from that trip and spent the next seven years and arguably I'm still on a journey, seven, eight years, figuring out how I would um, direct more of my time, energy and efforts and upskilling and, and understanding the local context more. So to speed up this conversation. I returned from Morningstar, continued to work there. My wife and I moved to South Africa, relocated with Morningstar, spent four years continuing to do the same work, but in the South South African market. We were based in Cape Town, but I got to spend a lot of time both learning kind of academically and taking courses and reading books and then actually traveling. Um, my wife and I had raised money at our wedding. Uh, instead of gifts, we took cash and you know, for the purposes of supporting community-based organizations uh on this during this time and so we took some of that money and well we took that money and went basically 
across different countries in Africa where we knew of some good community-based organizations doing great work. And I learned a lot from my wife about how to evaluate and assess and to understand things like log frames and theories of change and how to do some basic monitoring and evaluation to assess whether your money is being used you know, wisely and it's doing, you know, making an impact. And so that was a really amazing period of, of learning um, over that period of time. And, uh, and that's sort of really the catapulted me, I think, to ultimately quit Morningstar, which is what happened in 2015. I hadn't known about that uh, that story of the tour that you did with the money you raised at your wedding. What a great duo you and your wife are. That That's awesome. Um, so in 2015, you quit Morningstar, and then what happened? So I, I quit Morningstar to come back to Toronto. I met, uh, I had two friends from high school who were um, financial advisors, and we all kind of largely saw eye to eye that the kind of existing advice industry in Canada is really kind of broken and needed to be improved. And I was excited about uh, the fact that one of the, well, sorry, one of the problems with that is, you know, fees aren't very transparent. The way they're structured doesn't make a lot of sense. And one of the outcomes of that is that a lot of financial advisors don't spend any time helping their clients make charitable gifts because they make money as a percentage of the assets that their clients have invested with them. That's they, that's how they take their fees. So if they help their clients give away money, they literally will make less money from those mm-hmm. clients. So there's not an incentive. And so I was excited to A, do things, kind of shake up the industry and do things differently, and B, help our clients make charitable gifts. And the idea is, you know, if you can help make it easy for somebody to support a cause they care about with, with and these are, you know, dealing with high net worth Canadians, that's a way to drive some impact with my skill set. And so mm-hmm. I did a lot of learning about charitable gifts and tax law around charitable gifts. So, so how to improve people's, you know, basically um, make tax efficient gifts. And then and then tried to learn a lot about a variety of causes and tools at people's disposal and different organizations and what they did. And so we could give advice if clients were looking for some direction. So we did that for um, a year and a half. Um, I think we didn't all see eye to eye on exactly how kind of the business should go forward. Um, we ended up going our separate ways in um, early 2017, and then I launched Kind Wealth. Um, Kind Wealth is a uh, financial planning uh, for. I took a very big hard pivot um, with Kind Wealth. Kind Wealth was like where we had previously. My previous firm with my partners been focused on high net worth Canadians managing their investments. Uh, Kind Wealth went a different direction and went. You know, we're going to work with younger Canadians and underserved Canadians because the way most financial advisors price, as I mentioned, is a percentage of their clients' investments. And when you price that way, what that ensures is that financial advisors will only serve a small percentage of Canadians. And is mm-hmm. that two, three, four, five percent of Canadians who have enough assets, enough investments, that you can make enough money. Typically an advisor might collect 1% off a client. Mm-hmm. So I was interested in like, there's 95% of Canadians who are being ignored by this, are not receiving good financial advice. And it's really important to, you know, achieving your goals and to achieving financial security. So Kind Wealth pivoted hard. We worked with younger Canadians, do flat fee pricing on kind of a monthly subscription basis. So we price not based on how much you're worth, but how much time, effort, and energy it takes. And we can package the advice and service we provide into different levels of service so it can be very comprehensive and sweeping and we cover everything and we work closely with you and that's can be quite expensive but if you have the cash flow to pay for it great 
or it can be shorter one-off engagements. Just give kind of 80-20 rule. Let's focus on 20% mm -hmm. of the issues that will get 80% of the results and cut your cost and you pay flat fee. And so you know what you're paying, it's transparent. And we don't have any uh, conflicts of interest because you're just paying us for our advice and we don't get any commissions or kickbacks for selling any products to you, which is what happens in a lot of cases with advisors. So anyway, that was the the, the method. And, and I wanted to really think about talking to clients about what matters to you, not just let's maximize your wealth, but let's maximize your, your, your happiness, your fulfillment. Money's a conduit to those things. Money's not the end. And so we kind of market to that demographic and help them think about fulfillment. And is that more time with your family? Is that more time to give to causes you care about? Is it donating more money? Whatever those things are, we want to help you achieve those, you know, find, find, get you into the financial position to achieve those things. So interesting. As I'm hearing you talk, both the anecdote in Sierra Leone and now talking about kind wealth, there's this underpinning of values of, of not only principles, but like the philosophy of what money means to someone. And, um, and I just like to ask you about any seminal books that you've read. I know Winners Take All was a really big one for most of us on the Origin Capital team, but um, how has your perspective on wealth accumulation and money in general shifted over the years? And are there any books you can point to that have sort of pointed you in certain directions? It's a really great question. Um, I'm gonna have to think on the books one and I will, um, I'm gonna circle back in this conversation when I, um, when I remember and, and, and jump out because I've, I've been a lot of books and it's just been a while. Um, so let me think through that on, you know, the, the shifting perspectives and all that, you know, I had a really transformative experience. I haven't really talked about this a lot in um, until very, very recently. Actually, I didn't talk about it at all. I hid from it. It was a very big uh, point of shame for, for for me that I uh, I wouldn't share. And uh, it was only more recently that I, you know, realized that you know, kind of came to terms with that and realized it's it's well, it's not exactly a proud moment. It's not something I need to be hiding and ashamed of. Is um, you know, when I was working as a financial advisor um, uh, early in my career, this is before I had actually, well, I was studying English literature. So my, um, I had been working at the bank and uh, this is late 1990s. So leading up to the internet bubble, uh, credit was fast and loose. It was very easy to get access to loans and lines of credit, credit cards. And, um, and the markets were just doing great. And I was starting to do some investing. So I was like, practicing investing without having actually studied it or learned anything about it and it was just the the dynamic of the time because everything was just doing well if you were a, a new business and you had anything to do with the internet um you your your, your valuations were were kind of you know 10xing no problem mm -hmm. it was just very quick and fast and loose and so i ended up investing some of my own savings did very well lots of you know penny stocks and tiny companies you've never heard of that were all just skyrocketing and uh, so i thought to myself wow well i can you know i'm being offered these loans and lines of credit why not take some board money and do the same thing <laughs> yeah and uh i was also experimenting with some really exotic strategy investment strategies around um uh trading um derivatives so you know um, options contracts in particular i won't go into the nitty gritty of what those are, but they are essentially you know, really um, accelerate your risk and your both your potential upside and downside. And I'm using borrowed money to, to, to place those trades. And so I really leveraged up and uh, had kind of at 
you know, 19, 20 years old, uh, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars uh, in my portfolio, most of which is is borrowed money. And uh, you can see where the story is going. The, the, mm-hmm. top, the tech bubble burst. Um, it didn't burst overnight. It was a painful uh, death by a thousand cuts. It kind of deflated over the course of a year. And uh, through that, that year, I, you know, just increasingly running out of liquidity. I couldn't cover the debt payments and realized and the, and the value of the stocks are going down. And so my debt's going up and my uh, assets are going down. And you realized I had to claim bankruptcy at um, 20 years old. Wow. And, For uh, someone was, so young, that must have been what a whirlwind of emotions. Can, take us back to that place of you at 20 years old coming to this realization. Well, yeah, I mean, so it, it was, I mean, like, and listen, in the grand scheme of things, right, this sounds like, mm-hmm. you know, peanuts compared to the types of, you know, issues that we're trying to deal with it or help people with it origin capital, right? Like, but, you know, in my world at that time and relative to the things that I had experienced, it, you know, it's very embarrassing. It's it's scary. You're ashamed. You don't want to tell anybody. You, you know, I remember thinking about like, when am I going to tell my parents and how am I going to tell them? I'm living at home at the time. And so like, that's all sounds really privileged. And, and it is, there's no, there's no question, but it was still like, regardless for me at the time, it was a scary event. And, uh, um, you know, so I, I came to those terms. I, I realized I needed to claim bankruptcy. I did that. It became more embarrassing after the fact because I ended up doing an MBA and studying finance and then go and studying the CFA. And then after the fact, like I learned those things after the fact, but as a CFA MBA to say, oh, I'd claim bankruptcy is something that would be really embarrassing. And so I hid it and, and it was shameful for me more so after the fact, even more so after the fact, because I had become a lot more knowledgeable. But what it did for me was give me a profound sense of risk and and understanding deeply of what can go wrong, you know, will go wrong, and how do you you needing to mitigate that and protect yourself from it, in a much more deep and intuitive you know, and and visceral way than if I had only ever studied what could go wrong, you know. Right, absolutely. Just reading about it in books. That's so interesting. Wow. And so, how do you think? Um, okay, so the appreciation of risk, absolutely. Are there any other ways that you think now, years later? that shows up in your life, that experience has has changed something fundamental about the way that you work or the way that you counsel your clients? Um, how else has it informed who you are? That experience in particular? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I, I think it's um, really just, you know, counseling people that there's there's no get-rich-quick schemes. There are, you know, there's, there's no way to... Um, uh, like to be, you know, just like protect yourself first, mitigate risk, like what, like what could go wrong and let's just handle that and deal with that, um, and protect yourself against that and then worry about, okay, well then how do I maximize return? Let's only maximize return once I know that we've got the kind of risk covered. And I think that's a, that's a big part of it, but also just like that, you know, money is again, the means to an end, not the end itself. And so I'll give you an example, like you can have situations where you can press a client to like, you should take more risk in your portfolio. We can generate a better return if we do, and you'll have more money in the long run. That may be true, you know, as long as the client can stick to it and that uh, they they hold long enough and, and the assets actually go the way they should and they actually appreciate and value. But if in the process, that means that they can't sleep at night, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just not worth it. No. Why, like, why? Why are we doing that? So I can have 10 years of my life is of an emotional roller coaster. So, and it also, I think just taught me the understanding of like our relationship with money is really powerful and important and informed 
by our earliest experiences in childhood with what are the money messages we're receiving at home mm -hmm. and how do we view money and what it's for. And, and so, you know, that's affected me to this day in my life and my relationship with, you know, with my wife and how I view money and concerns that I have. So like being aware and understanding your, um, psychological, right. Your, your money baggage, right? Like what baggage do I bring to the table around money? What are my views about it and what it's useful for are important things to come into, come to grips with and understand, because especially when you come into a relationship and have a partner where they may have a very, very different view of what money's used for, what concerns and emotional baggage they have tied up with money. And if you're not aware of those things, you can be fighting about something and, and you don't know what the root cause is. You don't realize, oh, right. That's because they don't view money as this thing to, you know, to purchase things I enjoy. They view it as protection and safety and security. So they don't want to spend it. We're arguing about spending, but they're, it's because they're worried about security, not because they don't want to have a good time. You know, like, anyway, it, it just made you realize how much emotion is tied up with money. Absolutely. So much, um, yeah, I have my own stories from the last few years, but I think in relationships, especially money is such a, an interesting hot button issue. And, um, it, yeah, it brings to light a lot of our values around, around what it means to be responsible, things that aren't even actually about money, about being good. There's a, almost a moral element to it as well that sometimes gets folded in there. Um, so stuff that's really interesting to unpack. So yeah, 100%. yeah. Thanks for sharing all of that. Um, let's keep pulling this into the present moment. Yeah. Um, so now Origin Capital. So let's move into this a little bit. Tell me about how you came to be the director of Origin Capital and uh, a little bit about what the brand represents. Yeah, so um, Kindwell started in March or April of 2017. Uh, a few months after I started Kindwell, um, I wasn't looking for it, but um, I knew some of the folks at World Vision Canada. They uh, had reached out to me uh, because they were doing some work uh, in impact investing. And um, I was loosely familiar with uh, with some of that work because of you know just knowing some of the folks at, at World Vision. And I had been increasingly following um, impact investing as a, as a concept. So when I went to Sierra Leone, it was kind of 20, that was, I think, 2010. And that would have been right about the time that impact investing as a term was really born. And I hadn't heard about it at the time I was in Sierra Leone. I was learning about microfinance, which is like a lending to the poor. Um, but it's this kind of the idea of market-based approaches and early iteration of that. So um, uh, World Vision said, hey, listen, we we're, have some folks doing some really great work in this space and we want to formalize that and build a team around it. And we have a lot of development expertise, but we don't have an investment background. And you do, but you've also got some understanding of the work that we do and our, you know, in the context. And so, uh, you know, um, would you be interested in 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 coming on as as the director? And so, um, I originally was very reluctant because I was really excited about what I was doing at Kind Wealth, but um, you know, it really felt like just outrageous um, serendipity that you know, ten years, call it sorry, eight years after I had been in Sierra Leone. Uh, leaving Sierra Leone going, oh my goodness, what? how am I going to use my skills in investments and finance to make a difference in this type of context where like my, my expertise is helping wealthy people get wealthier. That has zero value and application in this context. 
and I left kind of deflated about that. And then eight years later, well, the impact investing is born as an entire industry in that time period. Mm-hmm. And World Vision is doing work in that space. And they would very much value someone with a background that I have because it complements their expertise in development. It was just like mm-hmm. outrageous perfect confluence. serendipity, a, a mm-hmm. call from God. I'm, you know, I'm, I, I'm religious. I believe in that. So, I, you know, it was just, it was too hard for me to pass up, even though it meant like, oh, kind wealth is going to not move anywhere near as fast as it otherwise would. So, um, yeah, that's how I got started. Um, and uh, that was kind of May, June of, of 2017. Okay, cool. And so tell me about Origin Capital. Well, the impact investing arm of World Vision and and how it's become Origin Capital. Yeah. So Origin Capital was born um, is 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 being hard launched. The brand is we're kind of doing a hard brand launch at the Social Finance Forum this year, which is November seventh uh, and eighth, at the evening reception on November sixth, which opens the entire conference. Uh, where Origin Capital is sponsoring that event, and we are um, and sponsoring the conference, and we're. Uh, going to be having a fireside chat. I'll be chatting with uh, Jed Emerson, who's one of the kind of founding fathers, I think, of uh, impact investing and um, really amazingly accomplished and and um, has great insights. And we're going to have a, com- you know, a fireside chat and uh, launch the brand there. But but the brand is is just that it's a brand. So World Vision is the legal entity. I'm a you know I work for World Vision. Our team works for World Vision. But we face the market with the name Origin Capital because it, um, you know, when you start to speak to people about like Origin Capital is in the business of raising investment capital and using that in ways that can uh, drive impact to World Vision's mission, which is to um, improve the lives of the most vulnerable children. And so when you're out there talking to people about investments and rates of return, and market-based approaches, it's very hard to break the, um, uh, to change the conversation when you come and you start as I'm from a charity. Because people immediately sort of, uh, I think, have mental heuristics and take mental shortcuts. Ah, okay, I'm talking to somebody from a charity, they want donations, and then they're going to spend the donations on programs and services. Like that's, and you can't, it's hard to break from that mindset. So we'd have lots of situations where we'd be out talking about our work, and I start talking about, hey, we're raising money for an investment. It's a three-year investment. It pays 3% interest. And they say, so, oh, oh I don't get it. Like, wait, so do you want a donation? Like, mm-hmm. no, no, no. <laughs> I'm talking about investments and it's impact investing. And, and still, you just have a hard time, right? So um, I think the, 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 the motivations, like why somebody makes an investment and why somebody makes a donation and what they want to know about those things what emotions drive their decisions are very can be very different between investments and donations. And so having a different brand allows you to speak a different language, serve, like deliver a different message, draw off different emotions that having, you know, that, that you can't do if you're coming under the same brand as the charity because they have, um, you know, they, they have a, diff- a different narrative. And so you don't want to confuse the market. And so that's why we launched a brand. Yeah, that makes sense. So tell me a little bit about what kinds of programs or investments uh, Origin Capital is involved in. So we've got, we're essentially in the process of trying to stand up three three different investment 
opportunities. Um, we have one that we've stood up and are, have gone to market with and are raising capital for right now, and that is uh, our small and growing business bond. And so that's the one I mentioned earlier. It's a three-year fixed-term investment, pays 3% annual interest, and we raise money from investors here in Canada. Right now, we're limited to raising money from accredited investors, uh, which means that essentially you have an income and, a, and an asset level over a certain threshold. But um, we raise that money from investors, then we take that money and we work with um, our micro lending arm called Vision Fund. And we loan that money to small and growing businesses in um, developing countries. So right now, those countries include Sri Lanka, um, Myanmar, Ghana, and Mexico. And we'll look to expand those countries as we scale. Um, but what we're trying to do there is say, um, yeah, this is nice because it, it it really leverages and, and builds off of the work, early work I had seen in 2010 with volunteering at World Vision, where they're doing a lot of work around microfinance, which would be you know a $50 loan, a $25 loan, $100 to you know um, the poor to start a business, and it might be buying some local seed, planting it, growing crops, and selling it at a local market. Uh, it could be, you know, starting up a little hair salon. It could be a, a variety of things. Um, oftentimes, it, it's agriculture in a lot of the communities we work, but doesn't not always. Um, but the point is, with those loans and those um, amounts, they're good to get started. They often allow a borrower to a client to create a subsistence business, meaning or a livelihoods business, which is you make enough income to feed yourself and your family. But it's it doesn't go beyond that, which is great because that in a lot of cases that's desperately needed. But if you want to grow bigger and expand beyond that, um, microfinance doesn't allow for it because the loans aren't large enough. So if you need to buy a piece of equipment, you need to hire staff, you need to rent a, a physical location, you don't have the capital to be able to do that. And unfortunately, in the developing world, that loans larger than microfinance are almost impossible to come by in a lot of contexts because microfinance lenders don't want to lend that much. If we're talking about $5,000, $10,000, and commercial banks don't want to bother. It's just not worth their time to lend such a small amount. Mm -hmm. And so you just got this big missing middle of finance, this gap where, um, you know, as an entrepreneur, you can't, you don't have the ability to grow your business and, 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 rec you know, achieve your dreams. And, and more, most importantly, create the economic development and, and decent work and jobs that get created when successful businesses thrive. And so that's what we're trying to do is address that big gap. There's no, there's a market failure. There aren't lenders willing to lend at that amount. And it's a really important mm -hmm. um, thing for achieving decent work, SDG number eight, decent work and economic growth. Yep, absolutely. What about the other programs? So the other two are still in the various phases of, of being, um, you know, propped up, I would say. So we've got the next most developed is our gender impact fund. And that is where we um, basically make, um, we raise money and we uh, invest into social enterprises that are solving some sort of challenge or problem that um, vulnerable communities face. So it could be a new energy technology, a healthcare solution, um, 
uh, it could be a new you know financial technology. It could be a, a variety of things, but it's it's something that's solving a problem that, that people that vulnerable people face. And these are existing businesses that already um, you know have a validated business model. They've probably been in business for a year or two, maybe three. They have staff. They have revenue. Um, but they need the next round of financing to grow beyond that. So they look, we look to make investments between 100 and $250,000. So this would maybe be the first stage as a, as a company when you go beyond your friends and family for raising money for your business and you're looking to an outside investor. And again, there's very few organizations willing to lend at these levels. Mm-hmm. Commercial credit and, and private equity investors tend to start around you know, $500,000, a million dollars. So that 100 to 250,000 is another part of this missing middle of finance. Our SGB lending, our small growing business lending is the bottom of the end, five to 25K. And our gender impact fund addresses the, the much higher end of that missing middle, which is 100 to 250,000. And for both of these things, what we look to do is like, what does World Vision bring to the table? What experience do we have? What expertise do we have? What relationships do we have that we could lend to these clients of ours or these investees of ours that will help their businesses thrive? And let's do that. Can we provide coaching, advice? Can we introduce them to um, uh, for you know um, government or other nonprofits? Can we connect them with other for-profit businesses make market linkages for them, so we really think about how to how to do that aside from just the money. Absolutely. And then we really Even want... other uh, loan yeah. recipients, um, a colleague of ours was telling me that uh, in Ghana, one of our SGB clients was thinking of expanding her business into event planning, and so Sarah, our colleague, said, "Oh, well, there's someone else doing event planning. Why don't I connect these two right. women?" And so then they build these informal networks as well, um, which lifts everybody up. They can share their their successes and failures and learnings from their entrepreneurship journeys and their journeys with the capital that they've received um, through a loan from SGB and and then strengthen each other. And so I thought that was an interesting way that we we played a hand in that too. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great example of like a practical hands-on example of that. Let me just digress for a minute here um, before I talk about the third thing, like a uh, third thing that we work on at Origin Capital, because most people don't realize don't know a lot about World Vision. Like it has high brand recognition, but a lot of people don't know much about what World Vision does beyond just, mm-hmm. oh, I recognize them. Yeah, for so, me, it was the 30-hour famine. That's I did it every oh, year it? as a as a student in public school in British Columbia. We would do the 30-hour famine that would let us sleep over at the school, which was the big draw, right? You don't eat for 30 yeah. hours, but you get to camp in the gym with all your friends. Yeah, and that was my connection to World Vision. And I really didn't know much beyond that. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. cool. Mm-hmm. I had even less than that. I mean, all I had was the recognition of like the child uh, sponsorship commercials growing up, uh, which I think a lot of people, you know, there was a big presence there. But, um, you know, Inter- World Vision's a, like a really amazing, fascinating organization. Um, I mean, I say that everything I, you know, kind of the, the things I've learned about development and the good things I've learned about how development should be done and done right come from World Vision. Um, but the so just for the quick and dirty on it, World Vision um, works in roughly about 100 countries across the world. The mission is to improve the lives of the most vulnerable children. Uh, We often work outside of just working directly with children because there's a whole environment and community you have to support that provides, um, that ultimately impacts children. Um, And we work across a wide variety of sectors. So it would be healthcare, nutrition, economic development, education, policy and advocacy. Um, So casts a really wide net programmatically 
as I said, we're in a roughly a kind of just shy of 100 countries across the globe. Um, big focus on kind of middle, uh, sorry, uh, least developed countries and increasingly trying to push more and more into fragile contexts. Um, and, and been around for 60, 70 years. And the approach to development is very community led. And so like well before this was like in vogue, World Vision had been doing this, like which is we we, when we enter a community, we walk in and we don't sort of like say, hey, you need schools and you need wells and you need this. We walk in and like spend oftentimes a year just building relationships and understanding the local communities. Um, so like relationships with, with leaders in those communities and then understanding their wants, you know, their needs and their challenges. And then we kind of co-create solutions with them where they have feedback into what's important and what, what needs to be prioritized rather than us give, coming in with a formula for these are the things you do and in this order. So I love that because that that is the way, if, 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 if A, you're interested in actually providing solutions that are effective and solutions that will last and that can be carried on carried on by the community after you leave, then you want to make sure that they're part of the process and buying in. And I think we've learned that as, as a sector in recent years, and certainly this feels a lot more in vogue, but World Vision has been doing this for a long time in that, in that manner, so I love that. Um, and, what, and, and the other thing is we've got 37,000 staff across the 100 you know, so my countries we work in, and 99% of the staff are locals to the countries in which we work. So if we're in um, you know, um, Sierra Leone, then we've got Sierra Leone's working, Sierra Leone's working there. Um, and so what that means is like our staff are themselves from the communities in which mm -hmm. we're working a lot of the times and they understand the context. And so we've built really good relationships over six decades and we have a intimate understanding of the local problems and challenges. And so that's this, that's the kind of backdrop in which Origin Capital works, which is this amazing expertise, amazing relationships and trust and an approach that is around co-creation with communities and understanding their needs. And we think about, okay, so origin capital, what do we bring to the marketplace? What's our competitive advantage? It's that. How do we leverage those things? How do we leverage, like, if you raised a billion dollars as an investment manager and said, I want to do some good with this and I'm going to make impact investments to help vulnerable children, you wouldn't even know where to begin. Like, you don't, No, or you have that 70-year history of of trying things and and seeing what really works in those contexts, yeah. Yeah, like anyway, we learned a lot of lessons and we have relationships and we we are connected to these communities. So when we want to try to identify, you know, entrepreneurs in in you know Zambia or in South Africa or wherever uh, and make investments into them, we can because we've got people on the ground who have been working in those places. Yeah. Um. We were talking a little bit before about the gender impact fund and something we didn't talk about was the gender aspect of that. So this gender lens that we use in our investment process um, and that applies to SGB, small and growing business as well. So what can you tell me about the gender lens um, and approach? Yeah, so um, we both, uh, I love this, I'm gonna borrow this term from um, Jen Price uh, at Calvert uh, Impact Capital. Calvert talks about using gens, gender as both a lens and a lever. And I think that's a really like uh, neat way to sum it up. Um, so gender is um, is both something we like trying to improve gender equality with the investments we make by investing in businesses that are solving some sort of gender um, 
some sort of issue that will 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 promote gender equality and 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 lead to a more equitable world for women is something we would do. So maybe that is you know an investment in you know a business that is providing you know sanitary napkins for girls in vulnerable communities so they can go to school. That would be an example of like using gens, gender as a lever. You're trying to improve gender equality through some sort of solution technology, some sort of business that's going to provide that. The lens part of gender is you look at any business and whether they're working on improving gender equality or not, are they indirectly positively impacting gender equality, like you know, creating safe and nurturing environments for women to work? Um, are they employing women in, mm -hmm. in roughly equal proportions to men at, the, at a minimum? Um, do they have women in leadership positions? Do they have workplace harassment policies that protect women? Um, what is their parental leave policies like? Do they provide safe places for women who are breastfeeding? Like, you know, there's a whole range of things that a business can do to create a more fair and equitable world for women. And so we look at uh, any investment we make, if it's impacting gender or not, with a gender lens. Yeah, that makes sense. I know there's an SGB client in Sri Lanka who runs a factory or like a coir fiber mill and lets the employees bring their children to like hang out and someone watches them while everyone's at the mill. And just having that, you know, that childcare built in is uh, is an amazing way of thinking of the gender lens, right? So in this case, yes, the the principal of the business is a woman, but even if it were a man and that childcare policy were in place, that would be an indirect benefit for women. It's a great example, yeah. Awesome. Um, great. And then the last one, YouthWorks. Tell me about that. Yeah. So this program here is um, where we're working with, so World Vision has this kind of child sponsorship model and approach to fundraising. It's not the only fundraising we do, but it's a big part of it. And uh, you sponsor children, right? So a donor basically gets matched and assigned to a, a, um, a child. Interestingly, I'll just digress quickly. We have this a new model where actually the called chosen, where the, the children are actually getting to choose their their donors, which I think is interesting and and consistent with our community-led approach to empowering you know to to working with communities and and hearing their voice and and them steering the direction of how we work. But um, but basically you get you know donors connect with individual children and support them. Um, but that sponsorship model because we have a we're a child focused organization it ends at 18 so when they've you know technically and legally become an adult um they would fall outside of the sponsorship model and so what we'd said is how can we continue to support those children uh you know these now young adults um as they continue their journey and so um you know tertiary education is a big way to improve you know continue to invest in in these uh, youth and so um, one of the challenges, though, is obviously funding it, paying for it, and affording it. And so we look to raise money uh, to basically lend um, tuition and, and school expenses uh, to these youth. Also provide them a pay them a like a living stipend so they can afford to like just live while they are in school mm -hmm. and not have to you know put themselves in maybe a precarious work situation to to to, to go to school. And um, we focus on um, education opportunities that provide tangible skills that are going to improve their odds of getting a, you know, an actual job, a, a career or salary beyond graduation. And, uh, and then they pay that back. Uh, so these are all loans, but they pay it back through a percentage of their earnings. 
And so if they get a lower paying job, we're getting a lower you know, payback and it's taking longer for us to get paid back. And if they get a better paying job, they get, you know, they're paying it back quicker. Um, and it's just easier for them to accommodate that um, rather than a fixed repayment schedule of debt and interest payments. Right. And they're not saddled with debt in the case that they don't have a job for whatever reason um, after they graduate. But one other thing that this program does is match them with partner employers as well. Right. So they um, so we're choosing we're typically helping students obtain education in an area where their skills are needed and then matching them with the employer. So, um, yeah, hard skills training is a big part of this uh, program as well as a few soft skills, life, life coaching and such. Yeah, exactly. And that, and that mirrors, you know, very similarly what we're doing with supporting the small and growing business clients, you know, providing whatever assistance we can provide because our, we have a vested interest, not in getting just getting paid back. We have a vested interest in like, we're here not to just prove that we can make an investment that is successful. We're here to actually change and improve lives. And so if it's not doing that, if we if we're successful in getting paid back, but their their life isn't meaningfully improved, then we haven't we haven't succeeded. So yeah, and impact measurement and management is such a hot topic. What can you tell me in a few words about how that's done at Origin Capital? So I would say this is another area of like our unique value proposition is we, we disproportionately focus on this. And this is an area that if you're if you're a pure for profit impact investor, um, you know might be something that you might be tempted to sacrifice. Uh, because, you know, it really is what allows you to improve your impact, but it won't necessarily correlate very strongly at the end of the day with your ability to market and paint a rosy picture to your investors who may not be particularly sophisticated when it comes to how, you know, the, the impact that you're generating and understanding that. So um, we disproportionately invest in it. And what it means is really pushing the envelope as, as hard and far as we can in terms of um, really trying to decipher what is impact. And that's you know, a big question. We're not going to do this topic justice in this conversation, but mm -hmm. just to give maybe a tangible example. It's not uncommon for lenders uh, to the poor, for instance, to talk a lot about, or investors to talk about the number of investments or loans they made, uh, how quickly they were paid back, um, what countries they were done in, what percentage went to women, all you know, stats like that. But those those things aren't impact, right? Like those mm -hmm. are those are activities. They're they're things that we're doing. They're we're extending these loans and these amounts, and and I guess they are um, results from you know financial results from the paybacks, but impact is what did they do with those loans you know um and what happens as a result so when it comes to our small and growing business lending you know the the theory is we do, we make these loans these businesses use them to grow they hire staff those people in those communities now are getting jobs and it's creating jobs and opportunity for them they those people then are more likely to now have an income and so then they become move from the informal to the formal economy where they become a red, you know a taxpayer and now they're contributing to their governments and their governments are using the, that money to make investments into their countries and infrastructure and all the positive things that come with governments you know having um you know the resources to properly support their you know citizens um it's also increased demand on the supply chain from um 
the businesses are not only employing people, but they're buying more supplies and goods from other businesses, right? There's this whole virtuous cycle. Mm-hmm. And what we hope is that, you know, the parents now who have jobs have better incomes and so that they can afford to pay for, you know, the um, uniform so that their children can go to school or they are more likely to buy nutritious foods and, you know, and, and feed, you know, and, and reduce food insecurity and pay for healthcare and all sorts of things, right? Like, that's the intent. That's the theory. But if all we ever measured was the number of loans that we gave and how much they were and when we got paid back, we would have no idea whether that that theory was actually holding up in practice. And there's a million and one ways and reasons in which, you know, we might do the lending and it doesn't actually translate into any of those positive things. What we need to do is, is actually measure the things that we're trying to create, not just the reason it doesn't happen, though, is because, you know, in a lot of cases, why people don't organizations don't do it is because it's a lot of work. It's a lot mm-hmm. of money and time and effort, and it's never easy in the field to collect data. What's what's what may be easier here in the developed world is much much harder. It's exponentially harder when you get into the field because um, there's a lot more variables to have to deal with. And so, um, what we do as an example, and we're on a journey here, so this is not the end, but it's a, it's our early foray and and advance in the space is. With our small and growing business lending, we're directly not only measuring all the typical stuff, but we're we're measuring the number of jobs that are being created because of the lending that we're doing. And we're measuring not just the number of jobs, but the quality of those jobs. So are they full-time jobs? Are they part-time? Are they seasonal? Are they contract? Do they go to men? Do they go to women? Do they go to youth? And we can disaggregate that data and we can see whether at a minimum, the lending that we're doing is actually creating jobs now, yeah. there's a lot more work to be done to sort of suss out the other off, you know, offshooting benefits that can occur, like what is happening to the families who now have more income? What are they doing with that income? Mm-hmm. So this is what I mean. It's a journey. But but we're much closer to that. And we're, we're, when you know that jobs are being created, you take a very big step towards an, you know, an impact on children that you didn't have if you only measured the number of loans you were giving. Absolutely. So our logo is, for people who haven't seen it, is a series of concentric circles. And um, what we're talking about now always makes me think of that image of these ripple effects that sort of start from the center and then move outward. Um, And so we're, yeah, like you said, not only measuring the number of of loans, but then how many jobs did those businesses create? How were the, what were the quality of those jobs? And we also measure the number of children that were supported um, when there are parents who are employees. We measure how many children they have and then the ripple effect out onto families. And like you said, it's still rough. Even the numbers might be like slightly rough at this point. And what effect it has on those children's lives is qualitative data we still need to gather. But I think often when you were talking, I was thinking about that image of our logo and the and the sort of ripple effects outward. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's awesome. I love it. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about impact investing overall. Um, I kind of want to look at the the furthest ends of the spectrum in terms of pros and cons. So like the limits and the areas you see that impact investing might be problematic. And then the other side, like if it really goes as well as it could go, what could this mean for the world? That's a really good question. Um, I think, you know, given my background at Morningstar, what I was doing there, right, was sort of seeing a lot of a wide variety of um, quality of products, investment products, and evaluating them, critiquing them, offering opinions on whether people, you know, they they make worthwhile investments or not. And um, and what I saw in that space was a lot of 
unsavory practices. I mean, a lot of organizations, and you really, it became clear from one organization to the next, if you spent any time looking at it, um, how they were oriented and what their purpose and, and, and mission actually was. So to give you an example, we, we talked a lot about evaluating companies, um, the stewardship of a company. So meaning, you know, these investment houses, they're creating investments, ostensibly their, their purpose is to help investors, you know, improve their financial outcomes through their investments. But there were firms that really cared about that. And then there were firms that were just, that was the way they were going to generate a profit was by doing mm -hmm. that. And so we talked about, is this business more interested in salesmanship or stewardship? And the mindset is a sale, a, 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 an organization focused on salesmanship or salespersonship, um, ask themselves questions like, hey, if we create this type of product, will it sell? Could we sell it to somebody? Is there a demand for it in the marketplace? And a firm that is interested in stewardship says, if we create this type of product, what are our investors going to think about us in five years from now or 10 years from now? Mm -hmm. And it's a radically different mindset. And you, what you see when you start to ask yourself questions about how a, you know, an entity that is concerned about stewardship acts versus one that is interested in sales you realize, oh, wow, look at the decisions they're making. This is a sales-focused organization, and this one's focused on stewardship. And of course, organizations focused on stewardship want to raise capital. They want to be successful, but they believe the way to do that is by taking care of and providing good service and, and value to their clients. And you'd be surprised how wide a spectrum that is and how many businesses fall on the sales side of things. Right. Um, and so I look at that in, in this context of impact investment to say, you know, I'm very worried about the for-profit impact investors using impact investing as a marketing gimmick um, and an, a, a lever to generate more sales rather than genuinely concern themselves with impact or you know the the equivalent of being stewardship in that in that space and so i think impact investment houses need to balance you know stewardship and really genuinely caring about the impact that they um that they're achieving and so i do worry a lot about tons of money flooding in that is going to kind of uh, greenwash or what was the, you use a good term for this the other day? Impact washing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, impact washing. You paint a good marketing picture, but you don't really care. You're not actually moving the needle and improving anybody's life and you don't care because you're just using it as a lever to sell stuff. So that's a big concern for me. I think given my background, I'm kind of vigilant against it. And I made a big, you know, pretty radical life change to, to change from the private sector to the nonprofit sector. And, and kind of, I, in my mind, it's like, oh, I don't want to come into this space only to be followed by, you know, um, unsavory um, salespeople who are just looking to make profit off of it. Right. And that's why I think we need so many people to take a stand for that. And so that's why I'm so, I'm so glad you're doing this podcast and on the Good Money podcast, I'll be doing the same, but we need people speaking up about, um, advocating for investors in these impact funds as well and and getting people to do their homework and do their research and making sure that they're investing with a credible um yeah not only credible but with a, a provider that has like um a track record of of having made impact and having been transparent about where money is going and their emphasis on those things rather than just you know picking something because it looked glossy and it looked nice and made them feel good when they were purchasing it and then never, never looking at it again. So, um, 100%. yeah, 
And for our part, I mean, our quarterly reports, our annual reports are all really in-depth documents that we encourage investors to check out or donors to check out because at this point we're we're seeking both investments and donations. Um, and that goes for anybody investing in anything. Should be looking at all of those things. Yeah, I really well said, yeah. Okay, and then the other side, if this goes as well as it could possibly go, what would impact investing mean um, in terms of a global shift? Yeah, I mean, I think people in this space are probably very familiar with the, you know, the SDGs and the Sustainable Development Goals, and the fact that we've got, you know, a two and a half trillion dollar um, uh, gap um, to achieving the SDG, annual gap to achieving the SDGs. So, quite, quite simply, we just need a much, much bigger pool of capital to draw from. The the amount of philanthropic, you know, capital, the donations and foreign aid by governments, is in the hundreds of billions. And the the gap, you know, the funding what we need is in the trillions, and so that's a big, big. There's a big difference between billions and trillions, and so we need to um, we need to find new sources of capital. And the only place with the cap the, the size of capital needed is is the investment world. And so there's about 200 trillion dollars of investment capital globally, and we need to shift more and more of that money um, to making a positive impact, uh, towards the SDGs and, and beyond. And so, uh, that I think is the carrot. And so can we get increasingly investors to think about and care about, um, the impact that their investments make on the world? And, and, um, and I think we can, I think we're seeing a very strong trend towards it. It's starting with the kind of ESG and socially responsible investing, and it's increasingly moving its way into pure impact investing, um, so yeah, I'm I'm very optimistic, but there's a lot of hurdles and obstacles. This is we're still babies at this, right? Like the, the entire term is only 10 to 12 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, arguably, people were doing impact investing before and just not calling it that. But mm-hmm. um, that's de- well, they definitely were. But the the industry, the basic point is it's brand new in the scheme of things. The, like the traditional investment industry is centuries, potentially mm-hmm. millennia old. <laughs> so this is a baby. Yeah, but uh, it's an exciting time. And um, I'm so happy to be on this journey with you. And uh, is there anything else you want to say in this conversation before we chat a little bit more about good money and wrap this up? Yeah, no, I, no, that's great. I think these are really, I, I love talking about the work that I do because if it, if it you know, motivates and inspires anybody else to, to do something, you know, to get involved and to pick up, you know, a shovel and, and dig with us, that, that makes me real happy. So, um, you know, I, I made a, I, I'd always, historically, this I'm going to kind of lift the curtain again in my psyche. I'd always had this sort of issue around like, oh, do I talk a lot about what I do? Because people are going to think I'm just mm-hmm. wanting to, you know, virtue signaling and wanting attention and wanting pats on the back. And uh, I kind of got over that one day when I just sort of decided like, listen, if, if there's like one or two people who hear anything that I've done and that inspires them and motivates them to make a, to do something differently or get involved and, and make a positive impact, like, it'll be worth it. Fine. I'll take the slings and arrows of whoever thinks that I'm, you know, just trying to sing my own praises and toot my own horn, but like, whatever, if it motivates other people to do something positive, great. Yeah. I have so many thoughts about that. First of all, like, let's not play small. That's like a a philosophy that I think all of us who are trying to do good things in the world shouldn't downplay, shouldn't downplay those things out of a sense of respectability or, or not seeming too big for our britches or anything like that. Isn't that a Nelson Mandela, Mandela quote? Yeah, I what, I'm trying to remember the quote. I think it's like our greatest fear is not that we are 
inadequate. It's that we're powerful beyond measure or something like that. And I think it was Nelson Mandela who may have said it in a speech, but you know who I think the actual author of that quote is, is Marianne Williamson, who's running for in the Democratic primary right now. I think it's misattributed. That's not the quote I was thinking. I know that. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not, and that wasn't the quote. And I like that quote a lot. But mm-hmm. Mandela says, I uh, just Googled it. There's no passion mm-hmm. to be found playing small and settling for a life that is less than one you're capable of living. Yeah, uh, that's it. Anyway, that's it's a, it's you could you could interpret that actually kind of in a in a different way than what you were talking about. But um, I think it probably anyway. That's what it made me think of. Yeah, but anyway, just to, on that note, I think that this is the time in history where all of the people who haven't had power need to embrace this belief that that together we have more power than we could possibly imagine, and we have the power to shift everything uh, for the good of everyone. So yeah. that's something I really believe in my heart. <laughs> Me too. And then the other thing I was going to say was that I want to acknowledge you too, because I've heard your podcast, and you are really good at saying, okay, look, I am a a white guy from a privileged background, but I want to learn and teach me and I'm here to listen. And so I think that that is, that is something all of us can emulate. And, um, so just wanted to acknowledge you for that. And very nice to hear. Thank you. Yeah. And, uh, I think your listeners must appreciate it too, because I bet a lot of the people listening, um, we all have a matrix of privilege and, and areas where we don't have advantages, but I think probably a lot of the people, if you're listening to this, you speak English, you have access to a device where you can listen to it. You know, there are there are certain things that, you know, we have privilege to spend. And so asking people, okay, how can I spend my privilege on you? How can I pay this forward? Um, these are questions we have to ask every day. So thanks for I'm doing welcome. that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. It's very nice to hear. It's 100%. It's a journey. Mm-hmm. I've just been so humbled. Every time I think I know something, I've been suitably <laughs> uh, humbled. And so, you know, uh, you just, you start to learn after a while, all right, let's just assume I've got a lot to learn on everything. And so anyway, yeah, I try to take it from that, from that position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, just as a final note um, for the listeners, if you found this conversation interesting, you think I ask okay questions, please come by to good money. Um, we would love to have you there. And uh yeah, like I said, it's a wide-ranging conversation, but all about impact investments and sustainable development. Yeah, yeah. So I'll just make that last uh, call again. I think like the good money stuff. I'm really excited about that stuff. I'm going to dig, you know, and and Marie and all of us there are going to really dig really deep into the international development stuff. Uh, so yeah, join us there. Come out to the Mars Social Finance Forum. It's going to be amazing. If you're interested in coming out to the brand launch, if you're if you're paid and you're coming to the social finance forum, like you have a conference pass, you're you're welcome and everybody's free to come to that who has a pass. And if you don't and you're interested in coming to the the brand launch event anyway, get in touch with us. We may be able to um, arrange for you to to attend that. Um, we've got a limited number of extra spots for people, but uh, sh- and share the word. Like if you're if you're willing and able and you want to like post and share on your LinkedIn platform or your whatever your social channel about Origin Capital and the work that we're doing in this space, we'd really appreciate it. We're a new brand, and so we need to share the the oh create awareness because if people don't know we exist, uh, we can't obviously aren't going to be successful. Yeah, exactly. Um, cool. Thanks, David. Awesome. I appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. 
And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. <laughs>